Today is your last day. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the Nocturnal Readers Box. If you love horror and sci-fi, the Nocturnal Readers Box is for you. Two novels every month delivered directly to your door, along with horror or sci-fi-themed bookmarks, art pieces, and more. But like I said, today is your last day. Visit thenocturnalreadersbox.com before the end of today, May 31st, if you want to get the June box, themed The End Is Near. It features items inspired by Brian Keene, Joe Hill, Nick Cutter, Mary Shelley, David Wellington, and more. Also, before this day is up, you can get an exclusive special edition of Salem's Lot by Stephen King. Not only is it rare, it is only available at the nocturnalreadersbox.com. It will be almost impossible to find after today. So subscribe before this day is up. Get 15% off your first six-month subscription by using the promo code WEIRD15. That's all one word, WEIRD15. Again, you can only get the June box if you sign up before the end of today, May 31st. Sign up now at thenocturnalreadersbox.com. That's thenocturnalreadersbox.com. And again, use that promo code WEIRD15. You can also find a link in the show notes. The nation rallied behind the grieving mother and her missing boy while the local police dragged the nearby lake and launched a national campaign to find him. His disappearance struck a chord in a city still traumatized by a kidnapping and murder of a young girl just three months earlier. Countless tips on the boy's whereabouts led only to dead ends. He was spotted in cities all over California. The boy's father, who was serving time in prison, believed that former inmates out for revenge against him may have kidnapped his son. Suddenly, the boy turned himself in to authorities. Not in California, though, but in Illinois. When the boy arrived to be greeted by his mother, the story took another bizarre and sinister turn. The woman told police the boy was not her son, but the police would hear nothing of it. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, weirdos. This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss future episodes. And if you're already a fan of the show, please help spread the word about the podcast. You can do that by leaving a rating and review of the podcast in the app you listen from and also, more importantly, share a link to this episode with a couple of friends on your social media and encourage them to subscribe. And thanks in advance for doing so. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness. On May 30, 1883, a stampede took place on New York's Brooklyn Bridge, killing 12 people, all because of a bizarre rumor. But the bridge has always had a strange history. 
If humanity were to receive a message from an extraterrestrial civilization right now, it would be the single greatest event in the history of civilization. But according to a new study, such a message could also pose a serious risk to humanity. With as many people that pass on while being treated by EMTs, it should probably be no surprise that phantoms might be encountered in an ambulance. There was no doubt that Thomas Joy was murdered by gunshot, but the witnesses all had different stories, as did the police. What really happened? Who shot Tonsi Joy? If you believe your house is haunted, it's best not to try and confirm it by using a Ouija board. Nothing good can come from that. In 1928, a young boy mysteriously disappears after his mother gives him a dime to spend on admission to the local theater. But that is just the beginning of this very twisted true story. We begin there first. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. On a very sunny afternoon on the 10th of March, 1928, nine-year-old Walter Collins mysteriously disappeared after his mother Christine, a telephone operator, gave him some money to spend on admission to the theater near their Mount Washington area home. The nation rallied behind the grieving mother and her missing boy while the local police dragged nearby Lincoln Park Lake and launched a national campaign to find Walter. His apparent kidnapping struck a chord in a city still traumatized by a vicious crime only three months earlier. In that case, 12-year-old Marion Parker was kidnapped for ransom by a psychopath named William the Fox Hickman, who shoved her dismembered body from his car just before being captured. Countless tips on Walter's location led to dead ends. He was allegedly spotted as far north as San Francisco and Oakland. One reported sighting was at a Glendale gas station in the back seat of a car, wrapped in newspaper with only his head showing. The station owner described the driver as a foreign-looking man, probably an Italian, accompanied by a woman. The boy's father, Walter J. S. Collins, who was serving time in prison for robbery, believed that former inmates out for revenge against him may have kidnapped his son though there were no witnesses and no proof that that had occurred. Police continued their search until August, when a boy claiming to be Walter turned himself in to Illinois authorities. Christine Collins paid $70 in travel expenses so the boy could return to Los Angeles. When he arrived, however, Collins said that although he resembled Walter, the boy was not her son. However, the Los Angeles Police Department, under terrific pressure to declare the case happily closed, refused to believe that the boy wasn't Walter, whatever the mother said. Emotionally drained, Collins caved in to the cop's suggestion that she try the boy out and took him into her home. 
but after three weeks of attempting to reconcile herself to the convenient fiction, Collins returned him to the police. Armed with proof in the form of her son's dental records and a troop of friends who agreed that the boy wasn't Walter, Collins still failed to convince LAPD Captain J.J. Jones, who investigated the kidnapping, that the boy was an imposter. What are you trying to do? Make fools out of us all? Or are you trying to shirk your duty as a mother and have the state provide for your son? You are the most cruel-hearted woman I've ever known. You are a fool," Jones allegedly told Collins. Resolved to bend her to his will and the department's convenience, Jones had the distraught mother committed to Los Angeles County General Hospital's psychiatric ward for evaluation. While she spent five days in the hospital, Jones extracted the truth from the faux Walter. The boy from Illinois confessed that he actually was 12-year-old Arthur Hutchins of Iowa. After his mother died, he had gone to live an isolated new life with his cold fish of a father and a malicious stepmother, he said. He ran away, hitchhiking around the country and working odd jobs. While stopped at an Illinois roadside cafe, Arthur said, he listened to a diner tell him how much he resembled the kidnapped boy from Los Angeles, whose picture had appeared in newspapers nationwide. Arthur quickly seized on an opportunity to see Hollywood, turned himself in to authorities, and carried out the charade by assuming the identity of the missing boy. For Collins, however, there was more heartache and trouble to come. Released from the hospital, she filed a false imprisonment complaint against the city, Police Chief James Davis and Jones. With the heat on the department, Jones, who also was being pressured to help solve a grisly murder mystery, insisted that Walter had been one of the victims of Gordon Stewart Northcott and his mother, who had recently been charged with beheading a youth, one of 11 children they sexually assaulted and murdered in Riverside County. But Collins refused to believe it, especially because her son's body was never found on the Northcott's chicken ranch in Wineville, now Miraloma. The case remains unsolved. On May 30, 1883, a stampede took place on New York's Brooklyn Bridge, killing 12 people all because of a bizarre rumor. But the bridge has always had a strange history. At the time of the tragedy, the bridge had only been open for six days. The structure, linking Brooklyn and Manhattan, was initially designed by German immigrant John Roebling. While conducting surveys for the project, he sustained a crushing injury to his foot when a ferry pinned it against a piling. After amputation of his crushed toes, he developed an infection, which eventually killed him. He was replaced soon after by his son, Washington Roebling, who also suffered a paralyzing injury as a result of decompression sickness and was unable to physically oversee the construction. So his wife, Emily, stepped in to do the job, unbeknownst to the public and male engineers and workers. Under her husband's guidance, Emily studied higher mathematics the calculations of catenary curves, the strengths of materials, bridge specifications, and the intricacies of cable construction. 
she spent the next 11 years helping to supervise the bridge's construction. The Brooklyn Bridge opened on May 24, 1883 to great fanfare with several thousand people and ships in attendance. Cannons were shot off, fireworks were launched, banquets were held, and Roebling was honored in his home since he could not attend and rarely visited the bridge again. On the first day, 1,800 vehicles crossed the bridge and more than 150,000 people crossed what was then the only land passage between Brooklyn and New York. But then the rumors began. Just six days after opening to the public, a rumor quickly spread that the new bridge was about to collapse. It was at that time the longest suspension bridge in the world. There had been 27 workers killed during the construction. In the previous decades, dozens of failed suspension and iron bridges had collapsed around Europe and the U.S., killing hundreds. Since this was the first suspension bridge to use steel cables, it was new, unproven technology. So when a panic broke out on the Brooklyn Bridge in 1883, you can imagine how many were already a little nervous about being suspended 135 feet above the water. The tragic incident started the afternoon of May 30th, when a woman tripped and fell descending the wooden staircase on the Manhattan side of the bridge. Apparently, this caused another woman to scream at the top of her lungs, which caused those nearby to rush towards the scene. The commotion sparked a chain reaction of confusion as more and more people panicked and mobbed the narrow staircase, creating a massive pileup. Thousands were on the promenade, quickly turning the situation deadly. Believing a collapse was imminent, terrified pedestrians scrambled for the exit, trampling one another. Panicked men, women, and children piled on top of each other and became trapped against the iron fences that lined the narrow promenade. In true old-time New York fashion, pickpockets came to rob the helpless victims. Eventually, some quick-thinking workers were able to cut away some of the iron fence, allowing trapped victims to escape from the promenade onto the streetcar tracks below. Afterwards, the New York Times described a vivid, gruesome scene littered with gloves, shawls, handkerchiefs, smashed jewelry, crumpled men's and women's hats, and shredded trimming from ladies' dresses. Broken canes and torn parasols splattered with blood were strewn about the roadway. In all, 12 people had died on the stairs, and more than 35 others were injured. The following year, P.T. Barnum helped to reassure the public of the bridge's safety, while publicizing his circus by leading a parade of 21 elephants over the bridge. But the weird history wasn't over. The landmark bridge soon became one of New York's favorite suicide spots. Many of the jumps from the bridge were publicity stunts. Some survived, and some didn't. And even today, it's still a place where locals go to end their lives. The first person to jump from the bridge was Robert Emmett Odlum, brother of women's rights activist Charlotte Odlum Smith, on May 19, 1885. He struck the water at an angle and died shortly thereafter from internal injuries. Many others have jumped trying to end their lives and ended up paralyzed. Others did it for the publicity and died. The bridge plays no favorites. The point of the story is not that the Brooklyn Bridge is unlikely to ever collapse, 
but we don't recommend it for jumping, and you should always be careful on the stairs. Roughly half a century ago, Cornell astronomer Frank Drake conducted Project OSMA, the first systematic SETI survey at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Green Bank, West Virginia. Since that time, scientists have conducted multiple surveys in the hopes of finding indications of technosignatures, that is, evidence of technologically advanced life, such as radio communications. To put it plainly, if humanity were to receive a message from an extraterrestrial civilization right now, it would be the single greatest event in history. But according to a new study, such a message could also pose a serious risk to humanity. Drawing on multiple possibilities that have been explored in detail, they consider how humanity could shield itself from malicious spam and viruses. The paper, titled Interstellar Communication, IX message decontamination is impossible, recently appeared online. The study was conducted by Michael Hipke, an independent scientist from the Sonneberg Observatory in Germany, and John G. Learned, a professor with the High Energy Physics Group at the University of Hawaii. Together, they examined some of the foregone conclusions about SETI and what is more likely to be the case. To be fair, the notion that an extraterrestrial civilization could pose a threat to humanity is not just a well-worn science fiction trope. For decades, scientists have treated it as a distinct possibility and considered whether or not the risks outweigh the possible benefits. As a result, some theorists have suggested that humans should not engage in SETI at all or that we should take measures to hide our planet. As Learned told Universe Today via email, there has never been a consensus among SETI researchers about whether or not extraterrestrial intelligence, or ETI, would be benevolent. There is no compelling reason at all to assume benevolence, for example, that ETI are wise and kind due to their ancient civilization's experience. I find much more compelling the analogy to what we know from our history. Is there any society, anywhere, which has had a good experience after meeting up with a technologically advanced invader. Of course, it could go either way, but I think often of the movie Alien, a credible notion, it seems to me. In addition, assuming that an alien message could pose a threat to humanity makes practical sense. Given the sheer size of the universe and the limitations imposed by special relativity, no known means of faster-than-light travel, it would always be cheaper and easier to send a malicious message to eradicate a civilization compared to an invasion fleet. As a result, Hipke and Learned advised that SETI signals be vetted and or decontaminated beforehand. In terms of how a SETI signal could constitute a threat, the researchers outline a number of possibilities. Beyond the likelihood that a message could convey misinformation designed to cause a panic or self-destructive behavior, there's also the possibility that it could contain viruses or other embedded technical issues, like the format could cause our computers to crash. They also note that when it comes to SETI, a major complication arises 
from the fact that no message is likely to be received in only one place, thus making containment impossible. This is unlikely because of the Declaration of Principles Concerning Activities Following the Detection of Extraterrestrial Intelligence, which was adopted by the International Academy of Astronautics in 1989 and then revised in 2010. Article 6 of this declaration states the following. The discovery should be confirmed and monitored, and any data bearing on the evidence of extraterrestrial intelligence should be recorded and stored permanently to the greatest extent feasible and practicable, in a form that will make it available for further analysis and interpretation. These recordings should be made available to the international institutions listed above and to members of the scientific community for further objective analysis and interpretation. As such, a message that is confirmed to have originated from an ETI would most likely be made available to the entire scientific community before it could be deemed to be threatening in nature. Even if there was only one recipient and they attempted to keep the message under strict lock and key, it's a safe bet that other parties would find a way to access it before long. The question naturally arises then, what can be done? One possibility that Hipke and Learned suggest is to take an analog approach to interpreting these messages, which they illustrate using the 2017 SETI Decrypt Challenge as an example. This challenge, which was issued by Renee Heller of the Max Planck Institute for Solar System Research, consisted of a sequence of about 2 million binary digits and related information being posted to social media. In addition to being a fascinating exercise that gave the public a taste of what SETI research means, the challenge also sought to address some central questions when it came to communicating with an ETI. Foremost among these was whether or not humanity would be able to understand a message from an alien civilization and how we might be able to make a message comprehensible if we sent one first. As they state, as an example, the message from the SETI Decrypt Challenge, Heller 2017, was a stream of 1,902,341 bits, which is the product of prime numbers. Like the Arecibo message, staff at the National Astronomy Ionosphere Center 1975, and Evaptoria's Cosmic Calls, Shuck in 2011, the bits represent the XY black-white pixel map of an image. When this is understood, further analysis could be done offline by printing on paper. Any harm would then come from the meaning of the message and not from the embedded viruses or other technical issues. However, where messages are made up of complex codes or even a self-contained AI, the need for sophisticated computers may be unavoidable. In this case, the authors explore another popular recommendation, which is the use of quarantined machines to conduct the analysis, that is, a message prison. Unfortunately, they also acknowledge that no prison would be 100% effective and containment could eventually fail. This scenario resembles the Oracle AI or AI box of an isolated computer system where a possibly dangerous AI is imprisoned with only minimalist communication channels, they write. Current research indicates that even well-designed boxes are useless and a sufficiently intelligent AI will be able to persuade or trick its human keepers into releasing it. In the end, it appears that the only real solution is to maintain a vigilant attitude and ensure that any messages we send are as benign as possible. As Hipke summarized, 
I think it's overwhelmingly likely that a message will be positive, but you cannot be sure. Would you take a 1% chance of death for a 99% chance of a cure for all diseases? One learning from our paper is how to design our own message, in case we decide to send any. Keep it simple, don't send computer code. Basically, when it comes to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, the rules of internet safety may apply. If we begin to receive messages, we shouldn't trust those that come with big attachments and send any suspicious-looking ones to our spam folder. Oh, and if a sender is promising to cure all known diseases or claims to be the deposed monarch of Andromeda in need of some cash, we should just hit delete. I've been telling you about my own personal experience with Dawn to Dusk, but well, this weirdo family member, Mike Weiner, he gave it a try for himself and he was kind enough to send me an email. So this is what he had to say about Dawn to Dusk. He says, I bought one order of Dawn to Dusk and here it is Monday and I'm feeling so high energy and happy. Now, to be fair, I had a very busy but really good weekend and I've been taking one tablet of Dawn to Dusk each day for the last three days so I thought it might be psychosomatic. But I wasn't thinking about the tablets. I wasn't going, okay, do I feel it? Do I feel it? I just have had a lot more energy. And then when your podcast came on, I thought, oh yeah, I started taking these. They must really work. So thank you for recommending this product. Man, oh man, is it ever worth it. Signed, Mike Weiner. Well, if you'd like to do the same thing that Mike did, you can try Dawn to Dusk for yourself at BrickHouseWeird.com. It's a special page they designed just for Weird Darkness fans. That's you. BrickHouseWeird.com. And you can save 10% off of Dawn to Dusk if you use the promo code WEIRD at checkout. That's BrickHouseWeird.com. Then use the promo code WEIRD. You can save 10% off your bottle of Dawn to Dusk. And there is a direct link in the show notes. I'm a part-time EMT with the county and I volunteer with the local fire department. I've done so for maybe two years. Being a rural department, we have almost all second-hand apparatuses, including an old Ford ambulance conversion. This particular vehicle was one of the vehicles the county bought brand new for our EMS department way back in 1985. It served them for 19 years before being shuffled off to the fire department to act as a rescue equipment vehicle and it earned a reputation as slow, difficult to drive, and positively impossible to kill with both services. Plans change, and shortly after we received the ambulance, we purchased a light rescue truck to carry equipment and personnel to vehicle collisions. As such, the ambulance got another refit, becoming a firefighter recovery vehicle to keep firefighters in good shape on the fire ground heat injuries are especially prevalent and heart attacks caused by overexertion are depressingly common. In December 2012, at around 1 in the morning, a late response to the station on my night off left me and another firefighter as last out of the station in the ambulance headed to the scene of a large residential fire. The roads were awful, snow over ice left over from earlier in the day, and the sleet was coming down heavily enough that we couldn't see much more than 50 feet. 
I reached down to grab the radio mic and tell dispatch that we were en route. As I reached down, the firefighter with me realized what I was doing and grabbed for the mic, saying something about keeping my hands on the wheel and eyes on the road. Our hands bumped and hit the box that controls the emergency lights and the interior lights. As the cab was lit by the interior lights, our emergency lights turned on too, and the spotlights on the right side of the ambulance blazed against the snow and ice. I shot my companion a glare as I began to turn everything off and then glanced in the rearview mirror. At that moment, I saw a young girl sitting on a bench in the ambulance, looking at me just as the lights flashed off. I slammed on the brakes and we skidded a bit. I turned all the lights on with a swipe across the panel and turned around to look in the back. There was no one. I did a walk around but saw no open doors and no footprints leading away. The girl would have been hard to miss as she'd been wearing a day-glow yellow t-shirt and shorts. Ryan, the firefighter with me, seemed skeptical when I explained and asked if I was okay to drive. I let him take over and kept nervously eyeing the back the whole night. That was a long night. The sleet turned to snow, then finally quit right before dawn. The house was a total loss, but everyone got out okay even the three-legged cat who was missing for several hours. During overhaul, Ryan was telling another firefighter about me flipping out so he too could join in heckling me. One of the paramedics overheard him and mentioned that back when the ambulance was still with EMS in the 90s, there had been reports of strange stuff happening. For example, the back doors would sometimes open by themselves in the locked bay. The lights would come on of their own accord and paramedics heard whispers. The truck is gone now, sold at auction so it can live a new life freaking out some other department. We left a note in the glove box, though. Figured they deserved a heads up. Fireman Doherty was on duty at the 3rd Street Engine House in Cincinnati in the early hours of Monday, November 30, 1896. A little after 3 a.m., he heard a gunshot coming from Muldoon's saloon across the street. He went to the door to see what had happened and was met by Pat Muldoon himself, who rushed in and told Doherty to call a patrol wagon. Someone had been hurt. Doherty sent for the wagon then looked across the street and saw two other men he knew. Billy Farrell was holding up Tonsy Joy, as if Joy was about to fall over. Joy was unconscious when the wagon arrived to take him to the hospital. Police officers stayed behind to question Muldoon and Farrell. They told the officers that no one else was in the saloon and they were playing cards when they saw Tonsy Joy staggering outside, his hand clasped to his stomach. He told them he'd been shot and showed them the wound. Muldoon and Farrell had not seen the shooting and Joy had not told them what happened. The officers took their statements and left. Joy died in the hospital at 7.48 without ever regaining consciousness. Thomas Tonsi Joy was a well-known sporting man in Cincinnati, likely to be seen on Vine Street at any time, day or night. Joy was 31 years old, a quiet, inoffensive man when sober, 
and even when drunk was not considered a desperate man. But in his younger days, he had been a scrapper and carried the scars to prove it. He was a shoemaker by trade, and in a melee at a shoemaker's ball, someone drew a knife and gave Joy four deep slashes in his face. Joy was very nearly killed when a man named Smithy fractured his skull with a billiard cue. He was later stricken with paralysis. He no longer had the use of his left arm, and his left leg could just bear his weight. Physically, he was not a threat to anyone. The following day, Coroner Har performed a post-mortem examination and officially declared Joy's death a murder. The angle of the fatal wound indicated that either Joy was laying down when shot or the killer held the gun low down and shot up in an underhanded way. Har was upset that the police officers had not arrested Farrell and Muldoon at the scene of the shooting. In addition to being a saloon keeper, Patrick Muldoon was a prominent ward healer connected with the political machine of Boss George Cox. Billy Farrell was an ex-police officer. Friends of Tauncey Joy said that there had been bad blood between Joy and Farrell, but no one knew the cause. Muldoon and Farrell were brought to the police station, and both were quite indignant when they were put under arrest. The story they told in police custody was essentially the same story they had told the night before, but the police knew these men and had a different theory. They believed that Joy, Muldoon, and Farrell had been playing cards with a fourth man who they were cheating. After their victim had been skinned, it was Joy's job to steer him away. When Joy returned for his share, they wouldn't pay. A fight ensued and Joy was shot. The general impression was that Farrell had done the shooting and Muldoon was protecting him. On December 3rd, James K. Kelly, a saloon keeper who worked for Boss Cox and Attorney Cabell, paid a visit to Police Chief Deitch. They said that they had the man who killed Tauncey Joy, but did not give his identity. The man was a city official, ready to surrender provided Muldoon and Farrell were released on bond. Chief Deitch was anxious to talk to the man, but was not willing to release his prisoners. The following day, the mystery man surrendered himself at the office of Coroner Har. His name was James Welton, and he was a park policeman. He said he'd been drinking with Joy. Joy got drunk and started to get abusive. Welton drew his revolver from his overcoat pocket. Joy grabbed him. A scuffle ensued, and the revolver went off. Joy said, "'Oh, I'm shot!' Welton said, I don't believe you, but if you are, it's your own fault. Then Welton left him. The police were skeptical, though. It came out that Welton was a friend of the prisoners and owed his city job to Muldoon's influence. They believed that Welton had confessed to an accidental shooting to take the heat off of Muldoon and Farrell. At the inquest, the coroner's jury heard testimony against all three prisoners, and there were a few surprises. Muldoon and Farrell changed their stories. They now said that Welton was in the saloon that night with two women. Joy came in and made some disparaging remarks about the women and Welton shot Joy in cold blood. Another witness also changed his story with contradictory results. Fred Burkhart, a waiter who had been walking home that night, first testified to seeing Muldoon, Farrell, and Joy together on the corner, but saw nothing more but after testifying, his conscience overcame his fear, and he returned to the stand to say that he had seen Farrell and Joy scuffling and could say without any doubt 
that Billy Farrell shot Tonsi Joy. The jury decided to err on the side of caution and charged all three with murder. When the case went before the grand jury, all the same evidence was presented, but by now the police and prosecutors refused to indict anyone but Welton. The district attorney protested and managed to move the case to the next session with a less political jury. This time they followed the lead of the coroner's jury and indicted all three. Farrell, Muldoon, and Welton each pleaded not guilty. Though the prosecutors were convinced that Farrell was the killer, there was not enough evidence to prosecute. Eventually, all three were released on bond and were never brought to trial. The identity of Tonsi Joy's killer remains a mystery today. There were always signs in our old house that it was haunted. Before Mom, Dad, and I lived there, it was owned by my great-grandma and grandpa, Nana and Dee, which whom passed away when I was very young and that we believed haunted the house. Some of the strange happenings were disembodied voices, which my mom claimed sounded like Nana, things disappearing only to be found later in the spot it was missing from, leaving the house for errands to find the bathtub filled with water and wet footprints on the floor, distorted faces reflecting in windows and in mirrors, and the feeling you have when someone sits on the edge of the bed but no one's there, to just name a few. I had never really felt threatened or too creeped out in the house, except for one room that always made me uncomfortable, the middle room. The middle room was basically a room that had a computer and other office-like materials in it where I would play computer learning games or find a book to read. Whenever I was in the middle room, I would have this feeling of unease and someone watching me, but I never made much of it. There was one time, however, on Halloween that was different. My family has always gone full tilt for Halloween. Everything from decorating to pumpkin carving and, of course, our annual Halloween party, which included a haunted backyard. The haunted backyard was a kind of haunted trail where guests that were invited were guided through a maze of scary props Dad and I would put out there. We also had all types of entertainment inside the house which would entertain the guests as they waited for the tour, such as food, games, a palm reader, and a Ouija board. The Ouija board was located in the middle room, which was set up kind of like a gypsy tent. In the back was a projector that my dad set up that projected an image of my mother's face onto a styrofoam head making it look like it was floating, as well as a handful of other decorations. To the left of the room, covered with a dark tablecloth and two lit candles, was an old card table with the Ouija board on top of it. I'd never really played with the Ouija board before and thought it more of a joke than anything else, being distributed by Hasbro, a known company for kids' board games. But of course there was a cute girl there at the party that wanted to play it so, as any red-blooded 11-year-old boy would do, I obliged her. Joining us in the room were about three other people about our age, observing us use the board. We started at first asking questions like, is there a spirit here, and how did you die? The planchette would move around, 
spelling out random answers and we'd laugh and comment on the answers, not taking it seriously. Keep in mind, I thought all this time she was moving the planchette. Until I asked what the spirit's name was, and it slowly spelled out Nana. I freaked out. There was no way this girl knew what we called my great-grandma or that our house was haunted. My family never spoke of it. She could tell my mood had changed immediately when this happened. With our fingers resting on the planchette, we asked one more question. Are you in heaven? As fast as we asked the question, the planchette shot towards goodbye and all at once the candle blew out. The closet closest to the Ouija board collapsed onto the table and all the kids in that room ran the hell out of there screaming. Rest assured, I never touched a Ouija board again. If you like what you hear and you want to hear even more, consider becoming a patron. I post patron-only content and bonus materials as well, including chapters of horror and paranormal books I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them. Become a patron by clicking the link in the show notes or visit WeirdDarkness.com and click on Become a Patron. If you did like this episode, please share a link to the episode with a couple of friends and leave a rating and review of the show in the podcast app you're using right now. I might read your review here in the podcast. Stevens 79 posted, Absolutely love your show. So entertaining and spooky. I tell everyone about it. I look forward to new podcasts. Keep up the good work, weirdo. Lambone 63 said, Something about the host's voice reminds me of the late great Art Bell. This podcast has the most interesting, scary, and fascinating stories. I've been a fan and subscriber since the first time I listened. I'd rate it more than five stars if I could. TDSSS201246 stated, Total addict to this podcast. The perfect voice for truly interesting and spooky stories with just the right touch of humor. I find myself listening daily to get through my workday and listen to the stories over and over. Weird Darkness is my all-time favorite, and I'm so glad I found it. Keep up the great work, Darren. Thank you to all of you who've posted those reviews. I really appreciate it, and I hope if you're listening, you'll post a review that I can read in the future. You can stay up to date on everything I'm doing with my newsletter. It's called The Marler Sheet, and it's free. You can sign up for it right now at WeirdDarkness.com or look for a link to it in the show notes. Do you have a dark tale to tell? You can share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. All stories of this episode are purported to be true. You can find links in the show notes. Death on the Brooklyn Bridge was written by Troy Taylor. If we receive a message from aliens, should we delete it without reading? It was posted at AlienUFOSightings.com. Haunted Ambulance was posted at GhostsAndGhouls.com. The Very Strange Case of Christine and Walter Collins was posted at CoolInterestingStuff.com. Who Shot Tonsi Joy was written by Robert Wilhelm. And Ouija Halloween was written by Blake Lacey and submitted at WeirdDarkness.com and posted at MyHauntedLife2.com. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. 
And a reminder, I'm traveling around the Midwest a lot in the weeks and months to come, and we're adding dates uh, as often as we can to keep it going, sort of a Weird Darkness tour. And I'd love to meet you if you can make it out to any of the upcoming conferences or festivals that I'm going to be a part of. June 16th, I'm going to be in Wheaton, Illinois for the DuPage Comic Con. June 22nd and 23rd, I'll be at the Haunted America Conference in Alton, Illinois. And then on June 24th, the very next day, I'll be heading out to St. Louis for the St. Louis Mighty Con there. And I've got a lot more events after that as well. You can get details on all the events that I plan to be at by clicking on events at WeirdDarkness.com, or you can click the link in the show notes. Find me on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and more. In fact, you can also join the Weirdos of Marler House Facebook group. I've got links to all of my social media at the top of the page at WeirdDarkness.com. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. This episode of Weird Darkness was brought to you by Send Out Cards. You can mail a real, personalized greeting card without leaving the house or going out to buy stamps. Choose from the hundreds of existing cards on the website or create one of your own, completely from scratch, using your own photos and message. You can even use your own handwriting and signature if you wish. You create it all digitally, on the website, before it goes to the post office to get mailed. For an extra special touch, you can add a gift to the card, like a stuffed animal, bakery items, or candy. And now is the perfect time to give it a try absolutely free, because you can send it out for Father's Day. Try it now absolutely free. Go to sendoutcards.com weird. And remember the slash weird part if you want me to pay for it for you. I'll pay for the printing and the postage. That's sendoutcards.com weird.